There's a quote which says, a good laugh heals a lot of hurts. There's another by the poet Byron, who says, always laugh when you can, it's a cheap medicine. Welcome to With Not For, a podcast from the Centre for Inclusive Design, where we look at how we can make our world more inclusive through natural, built and personal experiences. My name is Manisha Amin, speaking to you today from the lands of the Camaragal people here in North Sydney, Australia. Joining us here today is comedian, producer and lifelong disability advocate, Madeline Stewart, who has a show coming up at the Melbourne and Sydney Comedy Festivals from April called Brave. It's so lovely to meet you and thank you so much for being here today. Thank you so much for having me. I'm very happy to be here. (laughs) Oh, look, it's a real pleasure. And I think that, you know, the world needs more comedians, right? Sure. I mean, certainly more more interesting comedians. I think we're, we've done with all the, the straight white men. They've had their say and I think now it's time for some different comedians. And some diversity. So <laughs> yeah, tell some us. diversity. Absolutely. So tell us about yourself. Oh, I am a – oh, how do I even begin? I'm a comedian. I started stand-up comedy when I was 16 and now I'm 28, so it's been a long ride. And I am a person with disability. I'm missing my left forearm underneath my elbow. So uh, it makes me look like a Paralympian without actually doing any of the hard work, and I'm very happy about that. <laughs> oh, that's hilarious. That's really interesting, especially that last comment about Paralympians. Do you think that there is a judgment – around what people with disability should and shouldn't be doing in terms of the public space and what people are interested in. Absolutely. I think you just hit the nail on the head. There is absolutely this preconceived idea that either people with disability are an object of pity or an object of inspiration and there's like no in-between. There's no space for real human beings and real lived experiences. And, I mean, not that... It's bad to be a Paralympian. They're fantastic, aren't they? And they're just inspirational in the sense that they are athletes and they train so hard. But I think once we get into the world of you're inspiring for buying a coffee in the morning or remembering your name, that is, Mm. that's pity. That's not inspiration. You just have lowered expectations of me. As a comedian then, you started comedy when you were 16. Mm. Why comedy? What was your interest in this area? So this story started with, like, my little journey to comedy started with one evening. My brother and I went to Campbelltown Arts Centre, which is where I'm from, Campbelltown, and we saw Adam Hills. And as you know, Adam Hills is missing his right foot and he is very, very funny. And throughout the show, I saw my peers in this community. I saw the mayor. I saw all these like MPs and, you know, the people in the community that meant something. They were looking at Adam with this kind of awe and they just loved him. And they didn't see him as a person with disability and they didn't see him or look at him the way that I had been looked at. And I saw that as something of power and I really wanted to explore that and I really wanted people to look at me the way that they looked at Adam and I thought comedy was the way in. And that's certainly how I started my journey with comedy, to try and get a voice and try and get – I wanted people to see me differently. But as I've gone on in my comedy journey, it's kind of transformed into something else, which is more activism through comedy. And how did you end up in an activist space? Because, um, you know, when we've spoken in the past, you've mentioned that when you were young, activists, activism wasn't really part of your language. No. So 
growing up, I didn't really see anyone like me. I was, uh, I think I maybe met two other people with disability in Campbelltown. Uh, the only time I saw kids like me was at the children's hospital and it was all very macabre and sad and oh, I just didn't, I didn't feel connected to the community in any way. And I kind of like rejected disability like it was a bad thing or something to be shameful of. And I just wanted to be accepted and normal, just like every other teenager. Uh, it's a very boring, ordinary story of a teenage girl wanting to be, you know, invisible the and the same. Yeah. <laughs> but unfortunately, um, like when you have a physical disability, you're always going to be looked at and... I think the more control and the the more control I had over the way that people looked at me, the better I felt. But now I'm older and I guess I can't control the way people look at me. I don't know. I've given up on that. <laughs> and so then in terms of the your politics, mm. they came when you really went to Shopfront, right? Yes. So after university and I trained to be an actor because I thought – that's my way forward. I'll, you know, study theatre. And I joined a company called Harness and that's at Shopfront Theatre in Carlton. And it was a group of people with different disability all working together to make theatre. And that was the first time I saw people like me and had a connection and a friendship and we started to talk about, oh, this is what it was like for me growing up and this is what this is like for me, this is what dating's like for me, this is what, you know, transport's like for me. And I'm like, oh, my gosh, I have this wonderful community and we all share the really similar experiences and it felt like home. I don't know how to describe it in any other way than like being wandering around for years and then finally meeting these people who just you look at each other and you know that you have the same lived experience. And you don't have to mask yourself or no, mask what you are. You don't have to be shy as well. I think for the first time I wore like little singlet tops and wasn't shy about having one arm, which was such a relief and I didn't realise there was so much tension, constantly wanting to hide, constantly wearing little cardigans even in summer to hide that I had one arm and then – suddenly I'm surrounded by people who just don't care. And so I'm like, oh, I can be free. It was just like a breathing out and like finally, finally could be myself. And so why do you think sometimes that people feel uncomfortable with disability? That is a very interesting question. It's something I think about a lot. And I think there is a lot of different layers to it. But I personally think, and this is to be taken with a grain of salt, I personally think people look at disability and recognise that at any point in time they could be disabled. Like you, you slip and you fall down the stairs and you could be disabled. You know, anything, anything could happen. And I think that frightens people. I think there's a fear where they they know that people with disability aren't being supported in our community and they also have this fear and knowledge of joining that community but then there's also this ableism that is just within everything that is in our society. It's in the media. It's in, like, any sort of representation that we have. Like, disabled people in film are either, like, the Bond villain or, you know, just a sad hunchback of Notre Dame trying to find love, you know. There's some real stereotypes and stigmatisation around this, isn't there? Absolutely. And it doesn't 
help like there's that film which I think we all know which one I'm referring to where it's like I have a disability I'm just gonna die now like that is like the end point for a character like a character arc when it comes to disability should have more than I've got a disability and I've overcome it or I've got a disability and now I'm so sad I'll die like I think there should be real representation Absolutely. And there's some real nuance that comes with that representation that I think is sometimes really hard for people to convey, especially if they haven't been with or around people with disability before. But the work that you do with comedy is really interesting because in some ways I feel that comedy allows us to have the conversation that people are scared to have otherwise. Mm. Comedy is, it just, it's like a nice white sauce. It just covers a multitude of sins, doesn't it? You could talk about anything when you're funny or in comedy. Um, and I, I often say that like my material is activism through comedy. Um, and so I use comedy as a medium to educate people through shared laughter. Not that I need to educate people. I often start my shows with like a base level of assumed knowledge and if you don't have that, you just have to catch up as we go along. Um, And I think it's important that people talk about the real lived experience of disability and humour is the best way, I always think. Absolutely. And is that how you started Crips and Creeps? It's Crips and Creeps. It's a bit of a tongue twister there for me. Um, But is that how that started? Yes. So Crips and Creeps is an accessible comedy show and it's a monthly show held at the 107 Projects in Redfern. And I started that comedy club because there was just not any accessibility in Sydney for people with disability. And I think there's also another element of that in which if you have preconceived ideas of what stand-up comedy is like to be a woman or anyone who's marginalised in any way, like there's this idea that stand-up comedy isn't the nicest or safest place to be, right? right? Because it's not always appropriate. Yeah, and I would have to agree and be like, yes, whatever you think stand-up comedy is like to be a woman or anyone marginalised, it's that and worse. I think it can be a really dangerous and awful place to work and we don't have HR and, you know, people get away with anything in comedy and I don't think we should and I think there needs to be places where people can come and perform and feel safe as a performer but then also a place where audience members can come and feel safe and supported as well. And so that's what really brought Crips and Creeps together, the need for safety, the need for access and inclusivity. And so people feel comfortable then? Yes. So what we do is I only employ marginalised artists. At, like you, there will never be a straight white man on our stage ever, except Rove McManus. He was an ally and I crumbled. We all love Rove. Um, <laughs> he's the only exception. But I only employ people who are marginalised and I... I have Auslan interpreting, it's wheelchair accessible. Next step, we'd really love to get audio description, but that, you know, we're trying to get funding for that currently. Um, and it's really a space where audience can come and know that there's not going to be like some awkward joke that's going to make them feel uncomfortable or there's not going to be some rowdy audience member that makes them feel gross. 
what's your view on what we can joke about, what we can't joke about, and who can joke about what? Oh, this is such a big question. We could Sorry. make a whole <laughs> podcast episode just on this. I think, I think that um, when it comes to political correctness, my rule is if you have it, you can talk about it. If you have a personal connection to that, you can speak about it. And I think I'm going to be controversial and say you can joke about anything as long as you do it well and respectfully. If the humour is on the victim, that's probably not a very tasteful joke and you probably shouldn't do that joke. But if the if the humour is on you and you're in, you know, your shortcomings or something or your inability to understand, I think that would be okay because you're making jokes about your own lived experience. Yeah. I think the question you should always ask yourself when you're making jokes is why is this funny? Like, why is this funny? What is making this joke funny? If the joke is it's funny because I'm putting someone else down or it's funny because we're making fun of someone's face or the way they look, that's probably not very funny. But if it's funny because it's a play on words or if it's funny because it shows you and what a silly duffer you are, (laughs) that I think would be okay. So then when we think about that and even your work that you have done as an accessibility coordinator Mm. um, with the Sydney Fringe Festival, how easy or hard is it to work in this space, not only on the stage but also behind in the backgrounds? I I think it can be challenging. I think it's much easier to be on stage and tell a few jokes, I think. It's my natural space. I love it there. But that's just because you're good at it, let me say. I don't <laughs> think I could stand up on a stage and tell a few jokes. Oh, but I, I love it. I'm a I'm an attention seeker. I enjoy the I enjoy the attention. But sometimes when I transition I start doing work behind the scenes, either as a producer for Crips and Creeps or as a coordinator for Sydney Fringe, I felt a lot of pressure on my shoulders because Really, I'm chipping away at this huge iceberg, which is how, like, inaccessible Sydney and uh, ableism and these preconceived ideas. I really had to build a foundation up because Sydney Fringe hadn't had an access coordinator before. And so I went in there and had to, like, from the ground up, educate the entire company, being like, well, they, of course, they all had, like, a certain level of education. They're not, they're, they're pretty woke at Sydney Fringe. But yeah, I had to build this whole uh, level of understanding and, you know, the fact that access is involved in all areas. It's not just the physical accessibility of a venue, but it's also like it's in your marketing, it's in the connections you make, it's in who you're talking to, who you're inviting to your shows, how you're promoting. It's in everything. So for some people listening to this podcast, words like ableism or how inaccessible or inaccessible something is might be new. And when you say that Sydney as a big city is inaccessible Mm. from an event perspective, what are some of the things that you're talking about that some of us who haven't experienced those things might just be blindsided by them? Ableism is like sexism or racism but with people with disability. Right. And – inaccessibility of venues in Sydney. I think one of the biggest issues that we have is like a lack of physical access. There's stairs, there's no ramps, there's no elevators. There are a lot of heritage buildings in Sydney and 
you cannot change the infrastructure. You can't get anything altered in those places. And so it's it's a difficult thing. Like what are you going to value the heritage of the building or people's ability to come in and enjoy the space? It's, yeah, some it, it, it takes a lot of negotiating and a lot of campaigning to try and get more places accessible. Crips and Creeps is about entertainment as much as it is about advocacy. Yes. Do you think that what you have done could be replicated in other communities or in other spaces? Oh, I hope so. I I really hope that people see Crips and Creeps as a blueprint moving forwards, that accessibility and inclusivity is fairly easy to do and it isn't as complicated or as expensive as other people think it is. I started Crips and Creeps with no money. It was my first time producing and I was just like, I'm going to make an accessible comedy show. And I didn't have money for Auslan interpreters. But I had a friend, uh, Sean Sweeney from Sweeney Interpreting, and he said, why don't you get some student interpreters? It can be part of their learning. Like, we'll film it. It'll be their assignment. And so then we had um, Auslan interpreters students that were like I was helping that community. So it's all about like making connections and there might be a problem in like you don't have money here and so you find a way to to coordinate with someone else and see how, you know, there's always a way around things is what I'm trying to say. What I find really interesting about what you're saying is actually that if you don't have money, mm. you need to be resilient. Yeah. And I think that's something that really we can take from what you're doing here and that can be used in other organisations and other places. I'm not saying people shouldn't pay no, people for their services. No, by all means, please pay for Auslan interpreting <laughs> and pay correctly. Exactly. But I think there is something here about being res- resilient mm. and creative and innovative in the way that we solve problems. Yeah, and a lot of access doesn't cost money. It's just forethought and organisation. When you started Crips and, Cre- Crips and Creeps and – you went, right, I'm going to make this accessible. Some of the people that you were going to have in that space, some of the people, either audience members or performers, would have come from communities that are very different to yours, mm. tribes that were really different to the one you'd you know, been in. How did you make sure that their views were actually being heard? And was that a difficult process for you? Uh, I don't think it was particularly difficult. I just... I gathered a lot of people I knew together and asked their advice. I think that's what everyone should do. If you're not from that group or that tribe, as you say, you should contact people you know from that group and ask their advice on things and also encourage feedback as well. And sometimes people, I think, find that hard, especially if that group is a group that they don't know much about. Mm. You know, I think sometimes we might feel a bit awkward or we don't want to say or do the wrong thing. What would you say to someone who felt like that? Well, I think speaking from my own lived experience, if you're nervous about saying or doing the wrong thing, if someone says something silly to me around disability, I'll very subtly correct. Like if someone says disabled people or I'll be like, oh, people with disability, you know, something like that or, you know, oh, it's wheelchair user or something, I'll just slip it in. But I think when it comes to terms and language, which is usually where people get a bit flustered, I think often people will just tell you what they prefer and it's not a big deal. There are a lot of resources online that you could Google and look up if you're nervous, but I find mostly people are very 
generous and very kind. And as long as you're not saying something completely terrible to me, I will understand that you're trying to be you're you you have an intention of being inclusive and especially if you come to me and you say I really want to be inclusive or I really want to you know make my event more accessible right. to people with disability or whatever so it's being upfront about yeah, be, what we know and what we don't know be upfront and i think if you get feedback don't be resistant to that feedback don't don't be kind of like oh i wasn't you know just accept it and thank the person for giving you feedback are there many comedians with disability, you know, knowing that disability can be visible and invisible, that you feel are able to be role models for the next generation or for other people coming up, just like Adam was for you? Yeah, I think that there are a few artists with disabilities, a few comedians, but I think, again, there is a real lack of access when it comes to stand-up comedy. A lot of clubs people can't physically get into. So if we're discussing physical disabilities, there aren't a lot of us and it's literally just the physical barriers we can't get on stage. I have a friend of mine who is a wheelchair user and he will just like dump his wheelchair at the bottom of the stairs and just like crawl up the stairs and people have to lift him onto stages. Like I might deeply embarrassing before you start. It's you you shouldn't have to give up your dignity for a gig. Yeah. And so and so I think there are those barriers that are preventing comedians but then having said that as you mentioned there are comedians with with non-visible disabilities and there are there are quite a few of us but I think there is a real uh, not many people speak about disability in their comedy and I think more people should or maybe the people with non-physical disabilities whether it be um, mental health conditions or chronic illness don't really know where they fit in the in the disability world uh, right. Certainly, I found with my f- friends that I've worked with in Sydney, they're a bit confused. They they see disability as physical. They see disability like we see it on television, and they don't realize that they're part of that community and they can be involved. And so, I'm trying personally, firsthand in the in the comedy clubs, trying to get people to talk more about these experiences because even talking about like a friend of mine, she's Crohn's, and she started writing all this comedy about how her doctors are just ridiculous and the silly things they say to her before they put her under and, you know, for surgery and things. And it's just so funny and just so interesting and different. I don't know why comedians wouldn't want to talk about these things that that make you so individual. And I think the interesting th- thing there is also perhaps the idea that people don't want to hear these things or that it's too serious. Yeah. Actually, um, having seen, and I highly recommend that people um, watch some of Madeline's work and and also go see her, but um, it's really funny. Like it's seriously funny. I I think it's because it's different. There's not many people talking about it. I think I'm the only physically disabled female comedian in Sydney, and so I have quite a lot of range of things to do it's like free picking for me to just rip apart Dominic Perrottet or whoever I want to talk about or talk about physical access in comedy and there are such bizarre little situations that happen to me whether someone wants to pray for me on the street or if someone says something weird to me on a first date Um, once I went on a date with a guy who just looked at me and instantly the first thing he said to me on this date was one arm just that, just one arm, 
which was, I think, ridiculously funny. <laughs> so can I just ask you, what was your response to that? I just said, thank you. <laughs> oh, dear. Uh, I, I mean, I don't know what to say to things like that. People are just funny and, and silly and weird when it comes to disability and it's hilarious. I think when you have comedy like that, not only are you talking about things that are different that your audience hasn't heard of before or heard talked about by comedians before, but you also have audience members who have that lived experience or a similar experience nodding and being like, finally, someone's like making jokes about this and they can hear their stories and see someone like them on stage. And it's really, it's really fun and really lovely. What comes up for me is at the beginning of this, um, you were talking about how you found your tribe when you Mm -hmm. found people with lived experience and they had very similar interests to you or experiences to you. And it seems to me that through your comedy, what you're doing is broadening that tribe Hmm. because people who might not have had that lived experience themselves are suddenly starting to hear that experience through the work you're doing in your practice. Yeah, yeah. I think it's really important that you involve as many people as possible. For example, at Crips and Creeps, we have people from all different diverse backgrounds, whether it's uh, people from the LGBTQIA plus community or people from culturally diverse backgrounds. And I think it's really important that we all share our stories in one little space because you notice that a lot of the experiences are really similar. As mm. a designer then who you know, has lived experience in one area but mm. you're bringing together a you know, very diverse group of people, yeah. what's something that you learned that you weren't expecting to learn? Well, something I really that really startled me when I started doing Crips and Creeps is that people would come into the show and these are like young people in their 20s and they've come to see a comedy night and then they'll say to me afterwards, I have never met someone with disability before. Right. And this was their very first time meeting someone with disability or hearing what they've had to say. And if if that introduction is in a place where the person with disability has agency over their own voice and their own their own way of telling their stories. Like how incredible is that that mm. this person is being introduced to disability in such like a wonderful way. Right. Rather than in a way that maybe is not as genuine. Or fits into those two categories you spoke yeah, about in the past, right? Inspiration. Pity or inspiration. Yeah. Or anger. Which yeah. is kind of the third one that kind of sits Isn't there it? sometimes that people are scared of. Yeah. Um, the Lieutenant Dan from Forrest Gump where he's just angry and yelling in the rain. Yes, that's that's <laughs> exactly right. So what's the mismatch between you and the world that you'd really just like to have fixed? I have a problem. I can't open bottled water. <laughs> yeah, right. Because I don't. you need two hands. And I know you think you don't need two hands, but you need two hands and that is my pet peeve of the world. That and the taps you have to hold down for the water to come out because I'm constantly like pushing it down trying to catch the water in my only hand. It's it's a mess. Whoever designed those taps, special type of hell for that person. <laughs> so thank you so much for your time here today, Madeline. It's been such a joy and a pleasure to speak to you. Thank you. Thank you for having me. And thank you for listening and being with us here on With Not For. If you'd like to learn more about how you can make your world more inclusive, contact us on www.cfid.org.au or see the show notes. Until next time, this is Manisha Amin from the Centre for Inclusive Design.